Life is a canvas. Listen as Dr. Allison R. Tendler and her guests paint the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders on her podcast, The Art of Seeing Clearly. Through insightful questions and thought-provoking conversation, Allison and her guests explore the essence of what it means to truly experience life, business, entrepreneurship, love, success, and even failure through a clearer lens. I'm your host, Dr. Allison R. Tendler, board-certified ophthalmologist, surgeon, owner, and CEO of Art Vision and Artisan Skin and Laser Center. I literally get to work every day to help people see better on the 2020 eye chart. But true clarity in life and in business often requires a slightly different kind of vision. I happen to have a passion for learning how other entrepreneurs and leaders find their clarity, and I want to share with you some of their secrets to success. Sharif Madhavi started SM2 Strategic in 2001 to help doctors be better in their chosen profession. Beginning as a management trainee at SmithKline Beckman, Sharif rose through sales and marketing roles at Allergan Humphrey and went on to lead the marketing launch at Visix, the developer of the laser platform used in LASIK. His firm helps build market acceptance and demand for services and procedures where patients pay directly, broadly described as self-pay or elective healthcare. SM2 Strategic has helped over 50 companies and thousands of doctors. A frequent speaker and author, Sharif's new book, Beyond Bedside Manner, offers insights to doctors and their teams on how to improve the patient experience. Sharif, welcome to the art of seeing clearly. I truly have so much that I want to explore and talk about today. And I especially want our listeners to learn about you um, and, of course, uh, your art of seeing the world clearly, um, but also a lot about your book and your recent book release, Beyond Bedside Manor. Uh, I don't quite know where to begin, so I'll just kind of jump in. I mean, truly, I simply love your book. I don't know what took me, you know, long, too long to read it. And it's like, I told you um, when people have surgery, they're like, I wish I'd done that long time ago. Why didn't I read this? (laughs) Why did I wait? So for all those listeners, don't wait, go get the book and read it. Um, It's super easy read filled with truly, I'm going to say hundreds, um, maybe thousands of little golden nuggets of, of professional and patient experience insight. So with that, I mean, Sharif, why did you write the book? Well, you know, thank you. First of all, thank you, Allison, for inviting me to come and uh, speak with you and kind of share some of what I think is important uh, in the medical environment. And, you know, this book came following about, I guess, around 30 years of being in mostly eye care because I got into eye care pretty early in the mid 80s as a sales rep for a company called Allergan Humphrey. And that you would now know as Zeiss. Because Zeiss acquired Humphrey uh, back in the early '90s, and uh, you know is now obviously a juggernaut and one of the one of the big boys in the room for sure. Um, but I have always liked working with doctors, and I think the epiphany moment came for me not at Zeiss, but in the next role I had, which was with Visex, and we all know Visex is one of the early eczema laser companies, and that took me from the world of reimbursed medicine, like the Humphrey Field Analyzer and Perimetry, 
right? Selling based mm-hmm. on the doctor's ability to kind of cost justify the device and get reimbursed and offer a better level of care. That we went from that to the world of elective where there was no middleman, there was no insurance company paying the bill. And um, obviously, we know the story of LASIK and laser vision correction, and it's done well, I mean, reasonably well when you say it's the most widely performed surgical procedure worldwide. But on the other hand, I would say it's been a failure in terms of how many people have had this done, given that half the population uh, requires some form of vision correction. And you as an eye surgeon know this. Right. And, and we all kind of scratch our heads and go, well, why haven't more people had it done? I mean, I had PRK, gosh, a lot like 27 years ago. Right. I had to go up to Canada and the results I still see without glasses. Um, and so the results are phenomenal. And of course, the technology available today and the procedure today is far better. It's Absolutely. safer. So when you ask that basic question, why isn't this bigger? I always thought there should be like three to four million people a year in the U.S., you know, would be kind of a good growth rate. And we're nowhere near that. We're a fractional of that. When you get into, you know, I do a lot with aesthetic medicine as well, and that just continues to grow and grow and grow. And uh, that makes me think like, we ask, why aren't refractive elective procedures growing at a similar rate? And then that gets us into things like cost and, and value. And so what are, what do you think we're doing wrong in our profession? That's different than a a similar medical industry, like aesthetics. What are we doing wrong? Is it us or is it the patient? Well, well, it's, it's us. Let's we cannot blame the customer on this one. Uh, It is upon us completely. And it is a failure to communicate. That's really what it boils down to. And, and what I mean by that, it's the inability to effectively demonstrate with our words with what we have on paper, with the environment around us, the value that we offer through this procedure and what the patient's going to get. Because we know afterwards, patients are like, oh my gosh, like you said earlier, I should have done this a long time ago. That's one of the most common things that people say. Absolutely. And we know that fear is a barrier. But I think early on, probably five years into this, uh, some doctors and some of the providers thought that fear was not the barrier, it was cost. So they tried lowering the cost thinking a lot more people were going to have it done and the absolute op- the opposite happened. It was an absolute disaster, right? Fewer people had it done. And people were saying, well, it's really uh, the, the tragedy of 9-11 or it's the, it's the, you know, whatever recession is happening at that time period. And when Katrina came, the big thing in New Orleans, you know, oh, it's Katrina. I mean, every excuse, instead of looking in our own, at, in the mirror at our own practices and saying, what could we be doing differently? And the book, I would tell you, was born out of my frustration as someone who ran the marketing team at VizX, and we had done a lot to build value. And that was, you know, you just measure the value of the company. It was incredible. That, and then that was all kind of destroyed. A lot of that value was literally destroyed overnight when VizX decided that um, it was better to lower the fee that we were charging doctors. Like thinking like, well, if we just made their costs lower, like somehow this was some a financial play. And it is not a financial play at all with one exception. And that's just making sure we have good patient financing in place so that patients don't have to come up with the entire fee up front. They can put it out over a series of monthly payments over a period of time. Um, That problem of financing, by the way, is not just limited to ophthalmology. That's true through aesthetics. That's true through cosmetic dentistry. And there's some very, very good data that says that if financing was done kind of reasonably well everywhere, 
the market would be at almost twice as big, at least 50% larger, but maybe even twice as big in terms of demand. So think about the impact, Allison, to your business if it was twice as big, right? Incredible. That'd be an incredible uh, year, month, lifetime yeah. for me. But, but, but and and we, we, we do that in the, uh, you know, like the auto industries, the housing industries, we don't even think of paying cash for things typically. So we do have some expensive things that, that do cost money in medicine. So we're on like, why don't we take some, are we, are, is this what you're saying? Why don't we take some hints from other industries? Well, that's and that's what I've tried to do in the book, right? I I look at the world around us. I'm just I'm just I'm a curious person by nature, and I say, well, if they're doing it over there, can we learn something from what they're doing in that other industry and bring it into the realm of medicine and particularly elective medicine? That's where the real opportunity is for people like you and other doctors who say, I want to remain independent, and reimbursements are only going to go one way, and we know that's they're going down. So what can I do to augment my practice to offer something that patients would want and be willing to pay for? And the answer to your question, why isn't it bigger? I mean, I said it's a failure to communicate, and that's true. That's the pro- If that's the problem, I would define the solution as focusing much more intently on the patient's experience. And if you do that, if you focus on the patient experience, good things will happen good things will happen. First and foremost, they will feel like, wow, they're valuing me more. They're valuing my time. You know, and let's, let's, let's use a good example of this, right? The waiting room. I mean, it's amazing. I go to meetings and I'll, I'll be lecturing and I'll ask the audience of doctors and administrators, how many of you still call that front room waiting room? And like, still like half the hands go up. I'm like, are you kidding me? You call it a waiting room. And all that is, that's a holdover. That's a legacy behavior and a Mm -hmm. bad habit from another period of time when maybe people were willing to wait. Right. But in 2022, with this thing called a smartphone that all of us have, um, no one wants to wait for anything, like information, you know, food, you know, whatever it is. So time is, you know, from a waiting room standpoint, I feel like that's a negative connotation. And as I mean, time is our most valuable asset. Um, It should be our patients and our customers as well. You're right. And the problem with having a waiting room is what it signals. See, that's the failure to communicate because the waiting room communicates that my time as a doctor is more valuable than your time as a customer, right? Or as a patient. And I don't think that's, I don't, first of all, I think that's disrespectful, but secondly, I think that's a really bad idea if you're trying to convince people that it's worth spending their time and money with you to do something to improve themselves. And I think that's a barrier. It's not price. It's that we set up, we, we have adhered to medical traditions that shouldn't be there, like a waiting room, like rude staff. Like the, you know, the, do you remember the, the sliding glass window that would, they would open up? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could, I can remember as a sales rep trying to call doctor's offices during the lunch hour and they would like not answer the phone because it was the lunch hour. Right. And we know in today's world, oh my gosh, the lunch hour is maybe when patients, that's the only time they can call us. Right. So, I mean, it's changing those behaviors which were ingrained and, you know, they don't have courses on patient experience in med school. They don't teach you this stuff. No. So, so I felt it was my, um, I don't know, it's my passion. It was, I was going to say, it's why, my what, moral obligation word, to write the book. Yeah, use that word passion. Why do you, why are you so passionate about it? Why do you feel it's your obligation to uh, educate people on this patient experience? 
Well, it, it came from what I saw as a real missed opportunity in refractive surgery to have LASIK laser vision correction should be as common as, as orthodontics and a teenager. I credit Marguerite McDonald with kind of planting that seed with everybody. Like it should just be a rite of passage. When you turn 21, when your eyes stabilize, get it done. Right. We didn't achieve that. Um, we're treating somewhere, you know, in we're not, we're, we're just about touching. We're coming back to like a million eyes a year. Let's call it 500,000 patients in the U S just look at the U S 500,000 out of like, 150 million people that have correction. I mean, that's crazy that we're not. So we may be the most widely performed, but that's still such a small drop in the bucket. So the opportunity is huge. And I've seen the same thing in my consulting with aesthetics, with um, with cosmetic dentistry, and even at some of the more, let's call it reimbursed heavy, such as like ENT, they're starting to come up with some cash pay things now. And it's all the same problem. It's the same problem about making it so the patient understands what you're offering and is motivated to want to move forward. And okay. the things in my book have little or nothing to do with clinical outcome, what technology is used, what laser. It's not about that. Doctors also mistakenly thought it was like, well, it's about what laser I own. And the patient doesn't care about that. Um, they don't care about what you offer. They care about their problem. And they assume that you are going to have great equipment. Um, they assume that. They assume you know what you're doing. Just like every time you get on an airplane, you assume the pilot is well-trained and skilled, right? And that that so, plane is well-manufactured and it's going to work. So that that I would say that is the, that is the kind of the sort. My passion came born out of that frustration as a professional in this in this space um, a caring to see if we could do something better, uh, a scratching my head as to why isn't anyone else talking about this and just a general um, uh, kind of like or affinity for things around customer experience. I've just been I've just been kind of fascinated with that over the last 15 years, particularly and really studying how other industries have evolved. I mean, you think about it, going to a hotel now is so much better. Just think about the, the lobby and what goes on in the lobby of a hotel. They've made it really cool to hang around the lobby, right? They have cool bars and cool places to sit and mingle. That wasn't true a generation ago, right? You just want to get to your room and then get out of the hotel as quickly as possible and go out to the restaurant or whatever. So that's an industry that's evolved. I think retail has evolved. Apple changed the game completely on what it meant to go shopping for a computer, right? Completely. Right. Because and it they, became not about the item, but also about the experience you were having with that yeah, item or exactly. with that store. Highest, highest revenue sales per square foot outstripping Tiffany's by far. Right. And, and Apple's not perfect. And going to the Apple store now to me is no longer cool. It's like right. not fun. It's too crowded. Right, right. But, but they were revolutionary in their time. And, you know, we're in this digital era now where you don't have to you don't have to interact with humans for anything. Right. You just order everything off your phone and, you know, leave it at the door. Thank you. And and that's kind of sad. And we know that this incredible, incredible thing that you do. Right. Laser vision correction, modern vision correction, the aesthetics, you and thousands of your colleagues. This this requires human interaction. Right. You want this is like this is the one area where, wow, as a patient coming in, I want to know what my doctor thinks. And I want that doctor to look me in the eye confidently and make a recommendation. So what, uh, you know, in your book, Beyond Bedside Manner, you're sharing it, in a lot of these anecdotes that you're sharing um, 
are some of the stories within your books too. But you've got six insights or key drivers for understanding and mastering the patient experience. Um, and I guess I'll call them the six P's. Maybe you should call them well, <laughs> the I, I, six yeah. P's. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, those? And I do have some other questions yeah. related to that, but I wanted to open it up. Well, you know, people ask me about the process of writing a book and, and how long it took. And I said, well, in many ways, it took me 30 years because this is a collection of what I've learned across my career. And look, I'm not I'm not done. I, I still got I still got a lot I want to accomplish. But what happened was, is I was thinking about the things I've learned, the, the ideas and I call them insights that I think have been valuable. And doctors go, wow, I never thought of it that way. They tend to cluster around different groups. And certainly, and I'll just walk you through them, the profession, right? Why did you choose this profession? So there's a, a, a series of insights around that. And then it's patients, right? Well, that's who our customers, we're doing it for the patients. And then the next one is people. And that's really about your staff members, everyone on your team, because a great patient experience does not happen without a great team. It can't. Okay, those are the three critical ones. They're kind of on the, the right side of that hexagon. And then coming up, you know, they go around the clock hours. So mm -hmm. coming up now, rounding six o'clock, coming up the other way, I talk about um, your place, right? Your physical place, your digital place being your website and all the things that need to happen to make this place attractive so people want to spend their time and their money with you. I talk about promotion, the fifth P, and I believe that the rules of promotion have changed dramatically with the advent of internet and social media and patient reviews. And in fact, I'm just working for one of our clients, uh, Bausch and Loam, and helping with the training program. Uh, we uncovered really what I call the holy trinity of, of marketing, right? It's your, it's your website, it's your patient reviews, and it's the smartphone. And that's really, and why the smartphone? Because that's where people spend their time on their phone. And what are they on? Social media. And they're doing research. So these doctors think, oh, you know, if you think, oh, I'm going to advertise, I'm going to do the billboard, or I'm going to put the ad in the newspaper, whatever, and the TV, like people don't even want, they're not watching ads anymore on TV, but people are on their smartphones and they're, they're looking at what their friends are doing and they're doing research on anything. Now they're going to Yelp and Google reviews and all these places. So that's where the action is. And that's how I think you promote the practice. And in truth, that's a lot cheaper than running an ad campaign anyway. So I digressed a little bit on promotion, but coming back to the last, the sixth one, the final one is price. And price is the one that's the trick. Which is where we always think it's the first thing to think about. And I, and that's why I put it last in the book yeah. by design. And really, yes, it's important, but it's, you know, it's, it's so, it's equally important for doctors and practices to realize that when someone asks you about your price or why is your price so high, don't take the bait. Of course, you want to talk about that, but there's so many other things they need to learn about before you talk about price. And if someone makes that their first and like only thing they're concerned about for a premium practice, a premium provider, I think send them elsewhere just because that you're not, you know, if they're just buying on price, they're not valuing everything that can be done. And they're probably not your ideal customer. So let's talk a little bit about that one. Um, you know, I was in chapter 46 of your book. Is it really about price? Um, how do we get people to, you know, how do we help people value what we do and value the service that we're providing to? Is that on us that we're not educating them well enough? What, like, what are your thoughts on the price versus value or cost versus value? And how can we be better? 
So uh, you're right. You're Allison, you're right. It's because it's, we're not doing it the right way. Right. When you say, well, why don't they just get it? Right. Why don't they just understand? It's because of us. It's not because of them. And and this is one where we mistakenly think if we say it once, first of all, they heard us. Second of all, they understood us. And third of all, they accepted what we're going to say. And that isn't true. People learn differently. People consume information differently. So my my feeling or my thought on this is it's not about price unless we make it about price. Mm -hmm. And the ways that people mistakenly make it about price is promoting a low price, you know, promoting a low price or saying, you know, call now to get the $1,000 discount. I'm like, why are you, you're just, what you're doing. Devaluing ourselves. Devaluing it. You're saying price. And the value of this, of this amazing like process and procedure and, and, and gift. So I, I'm right. that the the value is so high there. And it's, I've always questioned, like, how do we get people like this is such an amazing thing to happen in their life. Yeah. It is. It has lifelong value. And yet I don't feel it's valued. So so let me also just go a, a little deeper on that. It's not that price isn't important to people and people don't care about price. They do. Right. And I think when we're when they're asking about price, especially early on in the discussion, we want to acknowledge, hey, I get it. Price is important. And we're going to talk all about the price and how to make this affordable for you because this ain't cheap. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're not the cheap. We're not the discount guys. And if you want discount, go somewhere else. I can even point you to places, but that's not what we value here. We value, to, you know, and then you've got to know as a provider, the, you got to know here are our key value points. There's two or three or four things that you do that are kind of make this unique and special for that patient in this moment. And you need to be able to communicate that not once, but multiple times across multiple across multiple mediums. So it's in person, it's on the telephone, it's in anything you send in writing, it's on your website. It kind of permeates your social media and the subtly the messages you're putting out there. It's what they see when they walk into your practice. It's what they see when they go to your website. And I can point you to some websites that are absolute disasters because they're trying to do everything and sell the person on everything all the time. No, it's not it. Let me go there for a second because um, that is... You know, you've stated it's really important to know what what business you're in, mm-hmm. and uh, that we don't have to be all things to all people. Just explain that a little, because that's in like the profession session sure, section sure. of the book. It's the opening. It's the opening insight. It's the most important question any physician should ask: What business are we really in, and how you define that actually ultimately will define the value that you the value proposition and i would say the trajectory of the economics for the practice forever and there's nothing wrong or right with one way or the other but which one are you well it's no i'm gonna say there's it's not a wrong right it's more it's like what level and if you say well you know i'm in the service of, of fixing people's vision i perform a service right well lots of people perform that service and services have become automated. Services are not nearly valued as much as, as experiences mm-hmm. and even experiences, you know, like, wow, I help people. I help people see better. Right. Or, you know, we that's fine. I help people see better. And we do that by having a great patient experience. But actually, there's even a level higher than that. And that's transformations. And that's when, in fact, it is the person who is changed. Right. It's not it's not some physical thing. It's not like a car. Oh, we now have a car. Right. No, the person is the thing has changed. And when that person has changed and it's so unique and it's so personal, it is a transformation. 
And so for the doctor to recognize that they're really in the transformation business, that's what changes everything. And I would say that is a right. It's not a right wrong. It's more of a, hey, am I in the service business, which is easily copied? Or am I in the experience business, which is great because few people understand how to do good patient experience? Or am I ultimately in the transformation business where I am the guide? My role as the guide is to help this patient go from being glasses dependent to glasses independent. Okay. Framing the world that way for a refractive surgeon will do wonders and start to unlock a whole bunch of questions like, wow, if I'm in the transformation business, why am I people, why am I making it hard for people to come in and see us? Right. Why am I putting these barriers in the way? And um, I wish I could tell you that this is kind of easy. It isn't. It's hard. It's easier to say I'm in the service business. We perform a service. Oh, my gosh. Medicare is cutting our reimbursement 10 percent. We got to perform more of those services. And then you're on the hamster wheel. Right. Yes. And I'm saying you don't have to live that way. Look at look at what concierge medicine has done to disrupt primary care. People will pay a fee to have more access to a doctor and better access and more personal. Now, we really can't do that so much in ophthalmology and eye surgery because we're not, you know, that that's not we're not primary care. We're specialty care. But here's a question asked. What would I have to do differently in my practice to be able to charge an admission fee? For people to walk in, that they would pay a fee. And you could say, well, man, maybe I'm doing that because I charge for my consultation. And in aesthetics, that's actually much more common. Charging for the consultation, that's okay. But if you're going to charge for the consultation, is it because you're the best doctor in the land? I don't think so. There's a lot of good doctors out there. You better do something to make it worth that several hundred dollars they come in. Mm -hmm. They get access to you and your ego. What do you, you, you touched on something about, uh, you know, a disruption in our industry or medicine. What do you think either has been or will be the biggest disruptive development for our industry? Well, if I look back historically, I think I think for sure the eczema laser was the disrupt the disrupt biggest disruption of the last century for technology. Yeah, for on on, te- on the technology side, I think. See, I think the technology is good enough now. I don't. Mm-hmm. To come up with a better IOL, every year there's going to be a better IOL. And every year there's a better IOL, people are like are so excited. Oh, this is the thing that's going to break the market wide open. And guess for, what? For our listeners, if you don't know what an IOL is, IOL is an intraocular lens. Yes. Um, it is the, the piece of material that we put inside the eye after we've moved your natural lens, either for something like a refractive lens exchange or a cataract surgery. So an IOL. And, and how many years have I heard? You, I don't care what the IOL was, the, the newest one to get launched, right? Oh my gosh, this is going to do it. Even the femtosecond laser for cataract surgery, this is going to do it. No, it didn't happen. If technology were the answer to, to breaking open the market, we would have had that by now. I'm convinced, which is another reason why we, I wrote the book, because I said, no, it's not technology, it's patient experience. Okay. okay. To answer your question, though, disruption, I think the disruption now is more in the services. And the things that support the technology. So, for example, uh, you offer office-based surgery, right? You have it with IOR partners. And in the practice I run, we also do office-based surgery and we've used IOR partners. I think that's hugely disruptive because it changed the location where you can perform the procedure. It made it more accessible both I'm going to say physically accessible because it's doing it in your office instead of at the surgery center. 
but I'm going to say it made it more emotionally accessible because the same patients that they saw during their consults and maybe their technician workup are likely going to be the ones assisting you in surgery. How cool is that? Right. We, we, we've, we've taken this. And so that's kind of like it. I'll call it the feeling, the emotional level. But then look at it at the economic level. Medicare is looking for ways to save money. If they can have this done in the office as a different environment, and if you will do both eyes at the same time, which now Kaiser study showed us is actually safe. Wow. That just unlocks potential savings for the system. That's really neat. And plus, we have the convenience to the patient. And if they're paying for something like a refractive lens exchange, boy, to be able the ability to do both at the same time, how that reduces the inconvenience. These are, this is an example. And we have the data to show it's safe to do. All yeah. we, we feel good. They feel great. We feel good. It's efficient. It's it's a transformation immediately right there in a short amount of time. And now we've used a uh, we, we've changed the way we deliver a service to make it more convenient for the patient to allow them to experience that transformation. Right. So we've got to make sure we're reinforcing that this is a transformation. We're setting up that way and patients are willing I to pay love that word. I love that because that that is you're trying to transform them. So I, I love that you've been using that. It, word. It's the right word. And, you know, I don't it, if every ophthalmologist said they're in the transformation business and really lived it, this would be we'd be so much bigger. But, you know, come up with your own thing. Right. It doesn't have to be the word transformation. But but, um, you know, we, we have of all the specialties, I really believe ophthalmology has been gifted with this incredible technology. And now the question is, okay, how do we, like you said, how do we get more patients to value what we do? Well, part of it is stopping doing dumb things that really work against this notion of transformation and drag it down or commoditize it as a more technical term into something that's a service, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to pay for commoditized services. You don't want to pay a lot. You want to get it as cheap as possible. My cell phone, my cell phone service my uh, streaming service, whatever it is, this is not this is not commoditized. Uh, well, in the eye world and the, the aesthetic world, it, it's it's too. You can think of like your Botox, your neuromodulators are almost getting commoditized. So what else is going to draw that patient in to say this is has value to me to come to you? Yeah. And it's everything from what they see on the website to how the telephone's answered or how quickly you respond to a text message to how they're greeted when they come in. I mean, this is what I talk about in the book, right? Made to feel made to feel special. Every patient's a VIP, not just the, not just the, not just the celebrity, every patient. So let's talk a little bit about um, that. And and that gets into, we can't do that um, without a group, a team, our staff. And uh, so let's talk about how the employees role in the, the patient experience and like, what are some of the characteristics of what you feel are the best employees and what should we be looking for in this team when we're hiring? Um, I'm less concerned about their technical skill. Like, can they do an auto refractor? You know, uh, I'm much more concerned. Like, do they have a heart for serving others? Do they have the heart? And I think I don't know. In fact, I believe that customer service is the one thing you can't really. I mean, you can teach some skills, but you, you can't force someone to be like kind of have that kind of customer service gene in their DNA. I think they either come in or they they, they come in with it or they don't. Um, I think looking for people who have a background in retail, right, in hospitality, maybe worked in customer service, maybe even in a call center, those things where they are responding in the moment to needs of customers. That's the kind of person you can teach them how to do anything clinically or technically. 
Right. But you can't I think you can't teach that heart piece. I think that's really hard to do. So that's who I look for. Right. But then the second thing is, OK, you got these people on your team. Then it's really setting a culture and an environment that says what's important. It is all about the pay. We are here to serve the patient, not the other way around. I think medicine often, often, often gets this wrong and it comes up in really weird ways. Right. The front parking space is reserved for the for the physician. Right. That's like that's like who's most important here. Right. I don't think it's a physician. I think it's the patient. Right. So little kind of weird ways that unfortunately communicate the wrong kind of thing. But um, working with a team, involving a team in the patient experience, involving them in diagnosing what's going on in the practice now and giving them the platform, if you will, the ability to voice things that aren't working to reinforce with them. No, we want your ideas. We value your brain. When you come to work, don't hang your brain up at the door, be here, you know, be, they, and it's brave for some of these employees. It's really brave for them to confront a doctor, right. To confront their boss. You have to make it safe for them to do that, to come. And that's easier said than done mm-hmm. because people just want to maybe, maybe people are just there because they want a paycheck. So as opposed to, Hey, I really am passionate about and, and fired up about serving customers. So I'll tell you another one. So patients, people list of patients who have been in the practice. You go, wow, uh, I found out that they're working at Macy's and you might say, and they're really had a good personality and they had a procedure with you. That's who I'd hire. That's who I'd hire. Cause they, they're, they, first of all, they took the medicine. They took the medicine, yeah. right? Yeah. They, they believe. What's the um, one of the things you wrote in the book was about the difference between A and B, you know, players on your yeah. team. Yeah. I found that very interesting. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So you got to separate your A players and your B players. And the A players are the ones that, you know, they're positive. They're upbeat. They're working to make things better. Your B players tend to be the ones that are complaining. Right. They, they complain. They gossip. And they and what they do in doing that is they tend to bring down others and that brings down the overall performance. And the problem most doctors have is their willingness to tolerate B team players instead of firing them. The best thing you can do is fire them, because if you don't fire them, your A teamers see that they're tolerated, that that there's a tolerance for this kind of poor behavior and their behavior comes down. They're not said, well, if they're going to let that happen, why should I work so hard? Right. Mm -hmm. That's the risk. And you see this all the time say, oh, yes, we've had so-and-so here for 20 years. And yeah, they're, they're kind of rude to patients, but they kind of know our systems. I'm like, get rid of that person lovingly, but exit them. They're doing you no favors. You need people who are going to represent you well, not, not, not the other, and also not bring down other employees. And I think it's like a cancer. I think when you let those people stay in the, in the business, they, they, they're like a virus, right? They, they uh, negatively infect and affect other people. So I'm like, don't, don't do that. And I know it's harder now because we're in a, you know, an employment crisis, right? And maybe that changes some if we get into a recession and people are more thankful, but I think you're, you know, it, it does change a few things, but I don't think it ultimately needs to change who we're looking for. And you talk about that with your hospitality quotient of yeah. people that are kind, uh, curious, um, that like really want to take care of people there. You know, that doesn't change who we should be looking for. Ultimately, I ask I ask a question sometimes in interviews. I'm just curious. I go, uh, do you like to entertain? Do you like to entertain? And it's the people are stunned. Like, huh? And like, no, we don't ever have anyone. I mean, no. Okay. That your hospitality, right? Entertainment. It's a very simple question. 
Yes. uh, You've got to be willing to work harder to find the right kinds of people. And I'm just telling you from someone who's made a lot of hiring mistakes. You know, I've learned I've learned a lot over the years. And I think about that. Uh, if you're going to entertain, what are you going to do to your home? How are you going to have it presented? Is the bathroom going to be clean? Is everything going to be picked up? Like you, you have this presence that you want to have, especially with people that have never been to your home before. You want to have this great impression of who you are as a person and a family. But I feel like that needs to transform into our business as well. What does, you know, is everything clean and picked up? Are there crumbs on the floor? Like we don't want that because we don't want to give that impression. Yeah, you know, at home, when you got guests coming over, there's usually a, a a mad dash in the last 45 minutes, right, to make sure everything's neat and tidy and picked up. It's You're, you're absolutely right. It's the same thing in our business. And we tend to invite people to come to our practices by advertising before we've picked up the house, before we made it clean and we made it organized. And that's getting the order wrong. That's why, again, in promotion, I'm like advertising is the last thing you should do. And if you have to advertise to get business, that maybe is because you're not doing enough to create a great experience, right? If, if the patient experience is done well, the experience becomes the marketing because people who have a great experience with you cannot help but talk about it with other people. Experiences happen inside of us. So with that, one thing that you talk about in the promotion part of your book is never ask for referral, ask for review because we're usually telling patients like, oh, if you like, you know, please tell your friends, et cetera. So tell us what's changed with referrals versus reviews. Well, again, it's, I think it's social media, it's social media and it's review and it's posting on the internet. So, you know, a good, uh, yes. If you have any good tactics for getting those reviews, you let me know. (laughs) Well, well, let's, let's kind of talk through it. So, so when we ask for referral, we hand someone our cards or give them three cards, say, please hand these out to three people. I understand the intention. Help spread the word. If you were happy, help spread the word. But they are much more the the word spreading is much more potent if they write a review, because that review will be seen by many, many more people. Now, of course, if they've had a great experience, they can't help talking about it. And yes, we want them to tell their friends. And yes, of course, we hope their friends call and say, hey, you just did procedure on my friend. I'm coming in, too, of course. But putting it in writing and putting it out there is a, is over the long term. That's what you want because you're building this just huge portfolio, hopefully over time, of really positive reviews. And guess what? There's going to be some negative ones, too. And that's OK. Because the negative ones are telling us, oh, we dropped the ball somewhere along the line here that we need to pick it back up and make it better. And of course, we're always going to have there's going to be the occasional crazy review for someone who blames you for something that really wasn't your fault. But you have to graciously respond to that one, too. And and so you say uh, ways to get reviews. It's again, it's set. There's technology now is so readily available to communicate with patients afterwards. It says, would you be willing to write a review? That would be the most helpful thing you could do for us. Write a review. Here's the different sites. Go to them. And of course, they have to do it the right way. They can't do it from your office because then it's like it's, you know, they have to do it once they get home. But those those tools and technologies are now readily available to make this happen. And again, you think, oh, well, what if everyone's getting people to write good reviews. Every doctor. Yes, that's what we want. Remember, we're treating half a million out of an available market in the U.S. of like 150 million. We have done teeny tiny. And I think, I don't know what it is in the U.S. now, 10 million people collectively maybe have had this done, maybe over 25 years. This thing, this thing should be, this thing deserves, given the value that you create, this thing should be far bigger. And you talked earlier, Allison, about people spend money on expensive things that are far more costly, a home, 
right? An automobile, uh, sometimes, gosh, a remodel of a kitchen. That ain't that. That's not cheap. <laughs> a new couch. That's not cheap. <laughs> vacations. People spend money and, and they will, but they're not going to spend money on things they don't see value in. So that's incumbent upon right. us to create that value in their minds and to make it feel like, and all you have to do is just think about things where you spend money and go, well, what led me to spend money? The, probably the sales rep or the person I was interacting with made me feel really good, right? They spent the time with me. The environment was wonderful, right? Yes, of course we will. And we do it, begrudge, we, you know, we, we do it without like even thinking about it. Um, I'm just, I, I've seen people and, you know, don't prejudge someone based on the way they're dressed. None of that. You can't do that. You can't do it. You don't need to. So, so anyway, I could go on for that on that for a while. So moving on from the book a little bit, I want to kind of get back to you, you know, I want to get back to Sharif and we haven't talked a lot about that. Uh, what, what brings you joy in your life it, beyond work beyond your passion for the patient experience what you know what what fills your bucket you know i've i feel at this kind of stage in my career i feel like i've proven what i needed to prove so it isn't about proving to anyone anymore proving it to others or yourself yeah, yeah no proving it to others like i've 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 accomplished I've, I've been really blessed to be part of some really cool things that have happened in medicine, right? In refractive surgery. So that part's good. You know, I spend my time with my family um, and I really value that, especially, especially now we have three kids. The third one is just finishing college this year. So it's really precious when we can get all of our kids together in the same place, uh, which only happens a few times a year. And so family is just really, really valuable to me. Um, and just, and, and that, and probably spending time in sports in one way or another are the things that really fill my bucket. I'm, I just like, yeah, I said, you, you and pickleball are, are good friends, right? A pickleball. Yes. I, I mean, pickleball, this is, this really became, I played what, tennis. What on. is it about pickleball? You know, you know, it's funny. I, I love ping pong and I've been playing tennis for a, a year or two. And this is kind of the mashup of those two sports. And I think I think it's just it's social. It doesn't take all day. I mean, golf is golf is frustrating. But golf, you're you're committing yeah, it's at a least good time commitment. You know, probably four hours. You're playing around eighteen, right? Um, and this is just there. You can go for an hour, have fun. You can take your your paddle with you. Show up anywhere. Get an app. Oh, there's pickleball being played here tonight. Go do it. That that's to me phenomenal. So I enjoy pickleball. Right. Uh, I enjoy music. My wife and I love to go see live music. Gosh, last week we saw two different, two different, two different bands in the last week. I mean, wow, because it's summer and you can do that kind of stuff. That's amazing. And and what's your what's your flair with Grateful Dead? The Dead, yeah. I mean, I, clearly I, they're all on your wall over well, there. Well, that's but, these, but, these are posters of like my favorite bands. Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I've liked the dead since I was a teenager and uh, have seen them a lot of times. I think like now it's coming up on like 70 times or something. Do you like travel that. to go see them like, hey, they're playing in New York. I'm going. I mean, I, yeah, now that I have the means and a little more time, I, I've done that. In fact, we went to Boulder where our son is in college and he's there for the summer and the whole family met there. And it was really fun because my entire family went to a dead show. Right. That That was like and they don't. I mean, I love them. They're kind of like put up with it. Right. They tolerate it a little bit. But but, you know, we love music. We love going out. We have, my wife and I are social people. And um, and we move. We we uh, 
we had this kind of fantasy 10 years ago. We were going to move from the suburbs back to downtown San Francisco and live in the city and, you know, walk to the theater and all that stuff. And no, we ended up staying in our town uh, here in Pleasanton and we moved, we moved, just moved to downtown Pleasanton. So I walked to the office. My office is on one side of Main Street. My house is on the other. And uh, we're getting involved in the community. I, I volunteer some time with one of the committees for the city. And, you know, it's just, it's fun. It's fun. And we're in this great stage now where they call the empty nester stage. And we're, we're just trying to figure that out. So uh, we're going to go to Italy. We're going to go to Italy in a, in a, another month. And so and spend a few oh. weeks over there and I'm speaking at the, uh, I'm going to teach at Wonderful. the ESCRS. Okay. I'm gonna, we're going to kick off. I'm, um, they invited me to do a six hour master class on patient experience. So well, I just I was I was saying we could talk for hours on good. on the, the patient experience. And so getting all that into a podcast is is not easy. So the fact that you're going to talk for six hours does not shock well, me. Let, let, let me be clear. No one wants to hear me or anybody else speak for six hours. It's a six hour course. But fortunately, I've got there's some great doctors over in Europe that you and I know, Shiraz Daya, Arthur Cummings and, and others and people who work for them, their teams. And I'm going to be bringing them up. We're having we're having panel after panel all day long. And it's really about taking this this notion of patient experience over to Europe now, Europe and the Middle East. And um, I'm glad to do it. I'm, I'm so thrilled that they invited me. So I know that's a I know that's a uh, a business thing. You asked about personal things, but uh, uh, you know, I, I enjoy I enjoy talking about this. And 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 I when I see people like you who get lit up around, oh my gosh, there's so many ideas here uh, that that fills my bucket, Allison. Well, what you do and your past, I mean, your experience speaks for itself. And to have all of that thirty years. Within, I mean, you've been so passionate about this since I've met you. You know how many, almost twenty years ago too. Um, it, it just it completely shows, and the fact that you could compile all of that into these amazing nuggets, again, golden nuggets within this book. This book truly is. I mean, it it is gold, and not just for our industry. I think somebody from any other industry could read this book and and find things that would help them improve their their service industry their their transformation industry what are they doing um, to also transform their customers lives as well so Sharif thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with me today um, and again your passion just seeps through your voice and uh, people need to go out and definitely read this book and they'll understand um a little bit more about you, but a little bit more about, I think, how you are also transforming our world. So thank you so much, Sharif, for uh, spending some time on the art of seeing clearly. It was a pleasure, Allison. Thank you. And you just go make it a great day. <laughs> you as well. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.